an announcement that I hope I'm making appropriately in time. I was out of town this weekend, but late last night I did pick up a text that said we're having a potluck after church today. Is that still okay? So, uh, even if you didn't bring food, there's plenty of food, uh, I believe, left over from the uh, service yesterday. And so if you want to stick around for lunch, uh, following our services, we'll be, uh, we'll be downstairs as a part of, of that. Uh, when I was eight years old, we had two unusual pets. It's a long story about why we had the pets and how we got the pets, but we'll just start with the fact that we had these two pets. Uh, one was a seven-foot-long crocodile, and the other was a nine-foot-long crocodile. And they were kept in a cage, kind of a, a deep pit that had this cage above it that had these, these railings that were, I don't know, probably had gaps of two to three inches between them. And the rule was, not sure why they thought this should be a rule, but no walking on the crocodile's cages. Well, on one occasion, my friend and I, when our parents were out of town, decided we would dare each other to walk across the top of the crocodile cage. While my friend was doing it, his foot slipped down into the cage just as my parents we're driving in the driveway, which is right exactly where the crocodile cage was. By the next day, we had zero crocodile pets in our home. Because our parents learned quickly, they didn't own the animals, they were owned by someone else, but learned quickly that when you live in an area where there's kids and you think you can domesticate a crocodile, well, you're in for something else. I think we live in a time spiritually where people are seeking a God they believe they can domesticate. A God that they think they can tame to, to do what they want, when they want, how they want. I think many in our uh, day and age see a very small God. They see God like a tool that you can use for building a house in which you already have the blueprint. I think people see God like a lever that if you just figure out the right lever to pull, then God will do whatever it is that you want him to do. People see God like a butler who comes every morning and says, is there anything else you need, sir or ma'am? That's the kind of way we seem to be relating and dealing with God. And this way of minimizing God is going to be challenged in our text this morning in Exodus chapter 32. And A.W. Tozer once warned that left to ourselves we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. We want to get him where we can use him, or at least to know where he is when we need him. We want a God that we can, in some measure, control. That's what our text is about. It's about a people who are seeking to domesticate God, to control God, and to use God as they wish and as they will. And we'll find out what happens to a group of people who seek to domesticate God in that way. Near the end of Exodus chapter 24, we find that God calls Moses to come up on the mountain and wait there, and there God tells Moses he will give him tablets of stone, and that they will give him the law and the commandment which he has written for their instruction. And so we're told that Moses and Joshua went up, but before Moses went up, he told the people that Aaron and Hur are with you, and whoever has a dispute may go to them, and so Moses and Joshua go off up into this mountain and they disappear. And days pass. It's kind of unusual because in the past it seems like Moses can make multiple trips up and down that mountain in a single day. It doesn't seem like ever before Moses has gone and camped out on the top of the mountain and yet he goes and the days begin to pass. And as the days begin to pass, people begin to be more and more anxious, more and more concerned, and more and more afraid. 
And if you were to walk through the camp, you would hear people say, where is Moses? Do you think something might have happened to him? What would happen if Moses died up there? What would we do without Moses? And of course, as it begins early in the days, I'm sure there were some people kind of uh, minimizing their concern, saying things like, it's just taking a little longer than usual. I'm sure everything will be just fine. Stop worrying. You know, there's advice we have sometimes that sounds like awfully good and apt advice. When we lived overseas, one of the things that was hardest for us as a family is that I would go into these villages where I'd get on buses that seemed to be held together by duct tape and then get on boats that seemed to be held together by even more duct tape. And it was often a miracle if I ended up where I was going. But one of the things that was hardest was I would tell Jerry, I think I'll be back on Monday, but if I don't come back on Monday, I'm sure something just went wrong. Don't worry. And of course, when Tuesday comes and you have no way of contacting your husband and he was supposed to be there Monday or Wednesday, you might get a little worried. And that seems to be the exact same things that's happening here. There's no cell reception, no fax, no email that they can say, Moses, give us an update. And so as the days turn into the weeks, people become increasingly anxious and even they become fearful. And now you walk through the camp and you can hear people saying things like, I'm worried about the water situation. I know we're still getting water out of the rock that's here at Horeb, but what happens if it dries out? Who's the only person who's been able to get us water in the desert? It's been Moses. Someone else says, well, the water is the least of my concerns. What about the Amalekites? Remember last time that they came and they attacked us? As long as Moses held up his hand, we were winning. But when Moses would put down his hand, the Amalekites would begin to prevail. And we're out here in the wilderness with no defensive posture, with no defensive options. And if the Amalekites come back and Moses isn't here, they're going to wipe us out. And so fear is increasing in the midst of the people as the days drag on longer and longer. And they wonder who would protect them because they're vulnerable and alone in the desert. How long would it be before you decided to take things into your own hands? Would you just simply wait for 40 days and say, oh, I'm sure God will work something out? Or do you start coming up with your own plan B? That's exactly what the Israelites did. All the anxiety, the concern, and the fear culminates in their own situation. They think they've solved the problem. And so in Exodus chapter 32, we find that when the people saw that Moses was delayed in coming down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, come make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And one of the things that we are to experience when they begin walking down this road of the golden calf is all of the good news that has proceeded in the book of Exodus is now going to be at risk in their solution. In fact, we're going to find that they're going to get themselves into such a mess that we are to be wondering, are they ever going to be able to get out of this mess? Because the real error happened when they decided to take things into their own hands. When they decided how God should show up and in what way God would be present. And so God's anger is kindled. Moses' anger is kindled. The tablets are broken to symbolize that the covenant has been broken. This great solution the people have turns out not to be such a great solution. 
And so why was it so devastating to the people? We find out in Exodus chapter 32, verse 8, that God's primary criticism is they have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. So, so what are they violating and what are they breaking in terms of the commandment of God? There will be a lot of debate about whether this is a violation of the first command or the second command. In other words, the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. Are the people, are, are they saying now, we will worship a new God called the calf God. And this calf God will get all of our glory and our honor and our praise. Or are the people instead violating the second command? That you shall have make for yourselves no idols, whether in the form of anything in heaven or on earth or beneath the earth, or that is in the water under the earth, and you shall not bow down to them or worship them. Are the people saying, this golden calf is this Yahweh who brought us out of Egypt. We are now worshiping the same God, but he's just in more manageable terms that we can see he's present with us. Said another way, are the people visually trying to represent God or are they trying to replace him? They've recruited a new God. If you look at the text, I think it seems clear that at least Aaron thinks this is simply a visual representation of God. This is their own terms of worshiping God. So Aaron says to the people, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Depending on your translation, you may have singular there for this is your God. And tomorrow, Aaron says, there shall be a festival to the Lord. So Aaron doesn't think he's abandoning worship of this Yahweh God who brought the people out of the land. He just is saying this calf is symbolizing, is representing, he is the visible, visible presence of God while he's gone. And fundamental to the whole concept of pagan idolatry is control. See, the pagans don't believe that the God is in the idol, but when they build an idol, a part of the spirit of the God is there in the idol. And how you treat the idol is representative to how that idol will feel and therefore how he'll treat you. So one of the best ways to control the gods or the deities was by building an idol and treating the idol really, really well. Because the idol becomes the eyes and the ears for that God. And so here we have the people believing that they can make the rules. God's not showing up and they're becoming afraid. And they say, we know a way we can control God. We will reduce him to the manageable terms of this golden calf. And when this golden calf comes, God will show up. We will force God to do what he want, we want him to do. We will force God to be where we want him to be. And we will so please God that whatever we ask of God... Well, of course, he will do it for us because we've treated him so well. But the chief sin of Israel, then, is an effort to reduce God to something that they could control. They, they wanted a God that was like the lever that they could pull. That They wanted a God who was like a tool that they could pull out of the toolbox when they were ready for him. They wanted a God who was like a butler that when they called on him, God would do whatever they wanted him to do. But of course we know that God is none of these things. He's the God that when Moses asked his name, do you remember what God said his name was? I am who I am. This is not a God who is to be reduced to something manageable. This is not a God who will ever serve under us. This is the God who when he appeared at Mount Sinai, there is the thunder and there is the lightning and the people are afraid. This God is unlike anything they've ever encountered. But they treat him like a God that they can reduce to manageable 
terms. And there is a great irony in the story. And the great irony is the fact that God already knew what the people needed. That God was very much in the plans of bringing about what they actually longed to happen. Rolf Jacobson says, Exodus chapters 25 through 31 describe the tabernacle and its apparatus as the divinely authorized means of securing God's presence among the people. Don't miss the larger context. We have just finished seven chapters of God saying, here's the place where I'm going to come and dwell in your midst. Exodus 25, 8, God said, instruct the people to build a sanctuary and I will go and I will dwell with them. So the problem here is not that the people are trying to secure this, something that visual, visually represents God's presence. It's that they want to do it in their own way, their own terms. See, in fact, if we look really, really closely at the tabernacle, at the calf that they build, it is in many ways an inversion of everything God instructed them to do. We're going to look at just four examples of that. The first we find is that when the people saw that Moses was delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, come make gods for us. And if we'd been reading along through chapter 25, by now I guarantee you, you're sick of the word make. Because 81 times in the previous seven chapters, God told the people exactly what to make. So when we see the words, they're going to make something, we are anticipating they're going to make what? The tabernacle. Because God has said, make this, make this, make this, make this, make this, make this. And now they say, let's make something. But it's not at all what God had instructed them to make. God had said, make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them. The people don't want to make the sanctuary for God, but they want to make the golden calf, they say, for us. No regard for what God has instructed. No regard for what God is asking for. They build something. But not at all the things that for the last seven chapters God has been telling them to build. And so we find in this text that Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. And I wonder, the last seven chapters, have we heard what they were supposed to do with their gold? Yeah, in the tabernacle, as God was instructing them how to build the tabernacle, 37 times God said, Here's what you do with the gold. And the people say, hey, i got a better idea. Rather than making the tabernacle like God commanded, rather than, than making the ark like God commanded, why don't we use the gold to make a calf that God has not commanded and has not instructed them to use? Another difference is the fact that when the tabernacle was to be built, the gold was to be brought of a free will offering. Here Aaron is commanding the people to come and to bring the gold. The gold, by the way, if you're wondering where it comes from, when God delivered the people, he said, go to your neighbors and plunder the Egyptians, and they will give you gold, among other things. So the very gold that was used as a sign of God's deliverance, they now use in building this calf. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. Yeah, they had been instructed to build an altar, but not this altar. And not in this place. Once again, the people are saying, here, we're going to do it our way. This, we think, is a better plan than the plan that God has given us. Similarly, we find that uh, we are told that tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. 
When God said he's bringing the people out of Egypt, you know what he told them? When you get out to the desert, you're going to have a festival to the Lord. But once again, it's not this festival, and it's not in this place, and it's not in this way. Don't you see the presumption of the people? God says, very, very detailed, do it this way. And then the people say, you know what? I think this might just be a better way to do it. See, God has been planning to be present with his people. And they're saying, I don't care what God says. I don't care how God instructs us. We need this, and what we need is all that matters. See, what the golden calf is when you compare it to the tabernacle is a perverted, humanly devised means of doing the exact same thing. And here the people treat God like a commodity that we can domesticate and use for our ultimate ends. And again, it puts everything at risk. We are intentionally going to leave this story at its lowest point. Covenant broken. God angry. Moses angry. 3,000 bodies strewn aside. Because what this text is about is how do the people get out of the mess that they've gotten them in? But you have to wait till next week to find the answer. Now, when you say church should be good news, and it should be good news, but a part of this bad news, actually, we find God's going to give us several thousand years before he unpacks exactly how he fully solves the people's rebellion. So if they can wait thousands of years, I hope you can wait a week to hear the solution to the situation the people have gotten themselves into. But we also can find ourselves in the same situation. One of the things that the people neglected to do is they neglected to be very familiar with God's will. Specifically in our context, God's will is revealed in His Word. I mean, God ad nauseum gives instructions about specifically how He wants things to be done. And I don't know whether the people just had not yet heard or listened or what, but in whatever way, they decided that they weren't going to do it in God's way. We have to be a people who are very familiar with the will of God. What God instructs and what God dictates. We need to realize that God has certain ways He wants us to obey Him. And our responsibility is to be obedient to Him and to His Word. I think the other thing that we need is ourselves is a bigger vision of God. I, I kind of like the, the story of what happened to Christopher Wright. Um, took a lot of heat from his close friends when he wrote his fourth book. Uh, he had written three books previously. Uh, the first book was Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament. The second book, Knowing the Holy Spirit Through the Old Testament. And the third was Knowing the Father Through the Old Testament. And so all the books were about knowing God. When it came time to publish his fourth book, it was published under the title, The God I Don't Understand. And his friends say, hey, you just wrote three books about everything you know about God, and now you're going to say you don't understand him? But isn't there some truth to that? That God is always so much greater and larger and bigger that even the things we know about him are so much larger than we can even begin to grasp. We need to allow God to be the full I am God who has his own ways of doing things, his own intentions, his own plans, his own purposes. Because I think that there will be a tendency for us to try to reduce God into a lever, try to reduce God into a tool, to try to make God into our butler, where we say, if you are God, you will do this. But instead, God has his own plans and his own purposes. And the biggest mistake we make is when we try to domesticate God. 
Ann Dillard explained this, and I think in what was an apt and even a funny way. She said, I don't know why people show up at church the ways they show up at church because I don't think they're expecting to encounter God. And so this is what she says of the experience of worshiping God on a Sunday morning in most of our churches. She says, it's madness to wear ladies' hats and vests to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should flash They should lash upon us at our pews. We are coming into the presence of God. Not a God that we manage. Not a God that we've reduced. Not a God that we've put in a box. But a God who supersedes every expectation we even have of Him. A God who in every way is bigger and greater. And are we willing to walk alongside this God who has His own plans for our lives? We do find, of course, in the New Testament the greatest example of one who walked according to God's will and purposes that was larger than his own. It was there in the garden that Jesus prayed these words, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. And Jesus is teaching us that in our human existence, God can never be used like a tool to help build the house that we've devised for ourselves. God can never be treated like a lever that when you figure out how to pull this lever, you know you're going to get that response. God is never to be treated like a butler who is just there to fulfill whatever wishes we want. Instead, Jesus teaches us a new way of living. A way of living that says your will is what takes priority and precedence. And I will do whatever it is that you will me to do, even if that results in my giving, my very own life, my very own blood for his sake. See, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And he shows us how to live an idol-free existence, where we let God rule, where we let God reign, and where we leave God in control. He cannot be reduced, and he cannot be domesticated. That's the kind of a God that Jesus shows us. If in your life you have brought God to a lower point, you've You find maybe you've been upset at God lately because you've been asking Him to do something. He's not showing up and doing it. And you realize you've reduced Him in your prayers. Uh, Maybe there's the the job that you've been wanting and you're wondering why God's not getting on board. And maybe you've realized this morning you need to get on board with God's plans. Um, But we are here as a body to pray for one another. And so if you have any need of prayer, um, we're going to be singing a song in just a moment. Come in the back and we'll pray with you. And maybe you've been living your life on your own terms. And as you've encountered these Israelites in their rebellion, it sounds awfully familiar to your own life. Where you've rebelled against God and his plans and purposes and you want to do his will. That begins in the waters of baptism. Baptism being the place where we release control. Where we allow God to do what God has done. What God promises to do in our lives. But if you want to respond in any way, I invite you to do that while we stand and while we sing this next song together.